Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 37th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Digging In, Coal Barons, Injustice, and Resistance. I'm joined by Chris Hamby. He is the author of Soul Full of Coal Dust, A Fight for Breath and Justice in Appalachia. The publisher is Little Brown and Company. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, absolutely. So tell me a bit about the book, and then I'm going to go back and and, uh, say more about your credentials. Yeah, well, so this book really grew out of some reporting that I did while I was a cub reporter at the Center for Public Integrity, which is a nonprofit investigative news outlet based in Washington, D.C., where I live. And uh, I had looked into um, some, uh, I started looking at Black Lung back in 2011, and I realized there was this larger story that I wanted to tell even after um, basically doing a couple of years of extensive reporting and work and released uh, multiple stories. But there really was a larger narrative of uh, two men, really, and their fight for justice and how that reflected all of the ways that uh, black lung remains a problem in this country, which I think is surprising for a lot of people, and how we have not delivered on the two promises that we made to this nation's miners in 1969 when we passed landmark legislation that promised to eventually virtually eradicate this disease and in the meantime provide fair compensation to those stricken by it and we have not delivered on on either of those promises and so this book is really a larger narrative driven by two men's fight to make those promises a reality yeah no it's a scandal that black lung disease has not been uh, taken care of uh this particularly uh, interesting topic to me my grandfather on my mom's side was a a minor uh at parts of his career both in a tin mine in Butte, Montana, and trying to survive the Great Depression by um, blasting lignite coal out of a, a coolie vein in North Dakota to get by. Wow. So it's, uh, it comes it comes home as a topic. Uh, let me just go back over Chris's credentials a little bit before we, we plunge in further. Uh, he is an investigative reporter for the New York Times. He's won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting in 2014. He was a finalist for the full surprise in international reporting in 2017. Uh, topics he's interested in covering include labor, public health, the environment, criminal justice, politics, and international trade. He's a native of Nashville, North uh, Tennessee, rather. Um, let's go back to your, your background, actually. I'm, I'm curious how it is that you found yourself interested in being a reporter, and in particular, an investigative reporter. What was the, the motivation, the aha moment that led you this direction? 
Yeah, I always had been interested in writing, and I really came to journalism through a love of writing. Uh, but um, I was actually went back to a, a high school internship when I interned at the local paper writing about sports and, um, you know, write what you know. And that was what I knew at the time as a 17, 18-year-old kid. Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, so that's that's how I got into it. And it just kind of took off from there. And then as I did more reporting, I mean, I did the usual, you know, covering beats, um, police courts, um, you know, politics, all those sorts of things. And I loved it. But I also know that sort of my predilections and interests are sort of gravitate more towards long-term projects and really digging into deep policy issues. And so um, I ended up getting more into that and went to grad school um, to get a master's in investigative reporting from the University of Missouri and then started out at uh, with as a very young um, intern and then got hired on at the Center for Public Integrity, as I mentioned, in, in Washington, D.C., which is which is great. So I got the opportunity to start doing uh, basically being second or third chair on uh, projects related to um, environmental and public health and labor issues. Sure. Well, you know, the uh, the uh, title of our episode is Digging In. And of course, there's the coal barons and running coal. And there's the people who dug in to fight against the injustices. But of course, you dug in as well uh, into this topic and stayed with this topic. What was it about Appalachia that, you know, I think at some point here, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful book. You've done really well in your career. There must have been something here where it really began to seize your heartstrings and your imagination. Uh, what can you give us about this region that really evokes, is evocative for you? Yeah, that was the thing that, you know, when you do a book, you really have to love the subject matter or else you're, you're you know, it, it, it starts to feel there are times throughout the process when it starts to feel tedious or like it will never end. But but it was easy to stay motivated with this one because of, um, as you mentioned, the sort of there's this magnetism to this area of Appalachia. And I specifically spent a lot of time in central Appalachia, largely um, southern West Virginia. And um, and also to the people um, uh, that who yes. live there, and it, it's it's a you know it, it was amazing just from early on in the process from from the beginning. I mean, it, there, I I had a sense that there was a, a good story there too, and that there were facts to be uncovered. But it was also just spending time going to to Southern West Virginia and uh, to Eastern Kentucky and, and Southwestern Virginia, where we're seeing this real upsurge um, in recent years, in the past probably about 15 years of severe black lung disease after years of decline. And just sitting with minors in their living rooms and they, you know, they welcomed me into their homes and just kind of shooting the breeze, talking about mining, learning about all the things that went on underground and how remarkable it is and how smart a lot of these people are, you know, really, um, you know, I think we, we tend to discount um, people who live in rural Appalachia. Um, they have their own very particular, you know, expertise and are very intelligent and thoughtful people in a lot of ways I found and were very welcoming to me. And it was just a real joy to, to talk with them. And it also, of course, just when you're sitting in a living room with someone who otherwise looks 
relatively healthy and is in his 40s or 50s. Uh, and after about 15 to 20 minutes of conversation is struggling to breathe, is literally gasping and, and making these horrible sounds that I'll never forget. Uh, you know, you, you would never forget this once you hear it. Um, it's it's hard to look away from that. And then when you start to realize that, that, that it's unnecessary for them to suffer from that and that there are things we could do to be alleviating that suffering, but that isn't happening, um, it is very easy to stay motivated, <laughs> I will say. <laughs> so, so there's a couple of things you brought up there that I, I really was interested in pursuing. One is, I mean, you come in as an outsider. You, I think if I remember right from the book, you mentioned being middle class and from Nashville, and uh, you don't have any ties to the region that I know of. But, you know, you're caring, your respect for these people. Um, obviously, your ability to bond with them comes through very nicely in the book. How did that dynamic work? I mean, was there some initial resistance, uh, suspicion on their part, um, just because you were interested in the cause that that carried the day? What what was it? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, because uh, on top of that, it did help some that I'm I'm from Tennessee and grew up in Tennessee. Um, but you know, I was this reporter coming in from Washington D.C. You know, writing about national news and. Um, you know, I think there is sort of a, a natural skepticism and and also, you know, for good reason, a lot of these, especially minors who are still working, are reluctant to speak publicly to reporters because, um, you know, this is they depend so heavily on, on, you know, this is really one of the best and only really good paying jobs with good benefits in the area for a lot of people. And they've been companies really have kind of inculcated this fear of any criticism uh, will, you know, you could get fired for that. Um, and, you know, it, to, it, so add that to the the fact that I was kind of coming in as an outsider, but I just really tried to um, not make assumptions to, you know, try and talk as little as possible and listen more. <laughs> um, you know, that's what we always do with, as a, as reporters, we try to do that, but, just to not prejudge people, have empathy, and just ask open-ended questions and let them talk. But there were, you know, there were times when, um, you know, my initial reporting down there, I, I went down um, with some uh, reporters from uh, NPR, great Howard Burkus and the producer uh, Sandra Bartlett, and we would just kind of go where. The government had set up these uh, uh, this RV basically that was going around coal country, um, doing uh, basically breath tests and X-rays on miners to try and get a, a sense of this resurgence and how it was going, and uh, and we would just sit at these clinics and um, you know just hang out with guys as they would go through this testing process and. Um, you know, there were, I remember in particular, there was one that was set up at a fire station in Whitesville, West Virginia. And uh, we, you know, some guys, I was talking with some guys outside the RV and they said, you know, well, you probably think we're all, you know, we're all a bunch of rednecks down here, you know, ignorant rednecks. And I said, well, you, you probably think all the people from all of us coming down from D.C. are a bunch of stuck up, you know, jerks, uh, and we, we just kind of <laughs> laughed and, you know, it kind of broke the ice and just got to talking, but 
you know, it's it's really easy to just talk with these guys and say, tell me about the mines, you know, and they'll just go and it's fascinating. And so it was a, just a joy to really to, to get to know them and to do this reporting. Yeah, no, those, those uh, preconceptions can be interesting. I remember, you know, reporters come into uh, Iowa, my neighboring state, to Minnesota. Every time the uh, Iowa caucuses are going to happen, and they say, well, we expect them to be Barles and James, but they actually talk like McNeil and Lair back in the old days. Um, quite informed voters. So, yes, it's never good to presume, and you didn't uh, presume that people aren't up to snuff or can't uh, hold a good conversation or you know, worthwhile to to have that conversation with. A couple of times now, you've you've made reference to the upsurge of black lung. So, what has what's the story behind that upsurge? What's what's going on here, after all? Yeah, it's fascinating. That's actually what originally drew me to black lung in the first place, because you know, black lung doesn't seem like an obvious thing to be reporting on. In yeah, <laughs> you know, when I started this yeah. in in 2011, and it was when we actually got a report of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, there was one page in there that was kind of a sidebar that said. Um, it, it noted that um, of the 29 miners who were killed, 24 had enough lung tissue for to be looked at on an autopsy, and of those, 17 had signs of black lung, and they were, you know, young guys, guys who hadn't been in the mines for that long. And then it sort of noted as an aside that this was consistent with what government researchers had been documenting for a few years: um, this uptick in disease. So really. Uh, you know, that was very surprising to me that that was happening. And, and you know, basically in the 19, early 1970s, we put into place um, rules that uh, required companies to control the amount of dust in the mines with the idea that that would eventually eradicate the disease. And then in the meantime, we would provide fair compensation to those who continued to be exposed to high levels and, and get the disease. Um and that really didn't happen. And I think there are a few pretty strong theories on uh, reasons why. And um, one is that the system that was set up to monitor this disease is largely a self-policing system where companies monitor themselves. Um, some of that is is by necessity because arguably you could never have enough inspectors to go take these samples of dust levels at mines consistently enough to, you know, uh, to actually have a good idea. But there are all sorts of ways that companies have both exploited loopholes in the system. And as I've found in my reporting, just there's been evidence of rampant fraud for decades. And efforts to crack down on that have really not been very effective. Um, so there's the the fact that, you know, even though the levels reported to the government look like companies are complying with the law, they're actually not in a lot of cases. And then you add to that sort of more recently the um, economics of the mining industry, really, where you have miners working longer hours, um, and you're working in uh, thinner seams. So if you think of coal seams as like um, layers in a layer cake, um, a lot of the really nice thick seams were mined out years ago. And so you're left with the thinner ones. And for years, uh, it didn't make sense economically to go after those. But now with the advent of 
both, you sort of have a confluence of more powerful machines. And when the market conditions are right, especially with um, steel making metallurgical coal, uh, that um, it makes sense to go after these thin seams of coal, but that necessarily means cutting a lot of rock uh, above and below the seams and sometimes within the seam. And that unleashes a more toxic mixture of dust that contains more silica. And there's good evidence that this is showing up in miners' lungs, causing more severe disease. So I think that's probably the other leading uh, factor here. And and just one sort of forward-looking point on that. Um, the government has been considering a regulation to impose a, a more stringent specific standard on silica this this mineral that is causing uh, likely causing this more severe disease um, but that has sort of stalled under the trump administration and there is now a lot of pressure on the incoming biden administration to perhaps revisit and even implement uh, such a rule that might protect miners Okay. Um, it, this is a very people-centric book, and rightly so. So I wanted to go to a couple of them that were really central to your story. Uh, Gary Fox and John Klein, can you both describe you know, the role they play in the book? But I'm also looking for a sense of who they are and you know, their, their personality, their, their motivations, um, you know, so we, we can get a, a real read on them. Yeah. So Gary Fox, is, uh, he was a coal miner born in an old coal camp in southern West Virginia. And uh, his, his father was a miner. He was one of a few boys raised uh, pretty much um, by his, just by his mother because his father died when he was very young. Um, he grew up in uh, basically across from a coal tipple um, where everything was, you know, the, the whole town was black, coated with black coal dust. And, uh, and Gary, um, uh, wanted to, he was very focused on, uh, you know, basically lifting um, his family, starting a family and, and, and lifting them out of the poverty that he'd grown up in. And that led him to go into the coal mines in uh, the early 1970s. And he worked his entire career um, during what should have been, you know, after what what should have been the rules that virtually eradicated the disease. So people like Gary should not have should not well, have become well, ill, yeah. but he did. Um, and then his story ultimately intersects with that of John Klein. And John Klein was um, sort of an idealistic uh, volunteer in the war on poverty from upstate New York, um, who came to the West Virginia uh, coal fields um, in the late 1960s as a community organizer and ended up staying, becoming a carpenter, um, running a business that uh, built homes almost exclusively for uh, people of modest means who qualified for a low interest government loan program. And then he started working as a benefits counselor at this rural medical clinic that um, received federal funds to diagnose and treat uh, minors who had black lung. And his job was basically to help them file initial claims, um, not necessarily to represent them. And, and not many people would represent minors because there are all sorts of 
uh, disincentives for lawyers to take these cases. But John, for some reason, and a lot of people thought he was a little bit crazy for doing this, but he started representing minors um, as a lay representative while he was working at this clinic. And it was there that he started to unravel what he believed was a systematic scheme by the leading law firm um, retained by most large coal companies. You, you mean Jackson Kelly? The one exactly. That, yeah. Okay. Yes. And, um, and so that is uh, eventually led him to Gary Fox, um, who was um, fighting Jackson Kelly in his ongoing claim. Sure. Well, I think they're both unique people. One thing is, you know, Gary Fox isn't just a miner. He's a very specialized miner. It's called a roof bolter. What, what is a roof bolter? Yeah, these are the people who do one of the most dangerous jobs and also one of the most high exposure to dust jobs in the mines. And so after the machine, uh, usually a, a, most sections where Gary worked, it was a continuous mining machine. So this is uh, basically, uh, think of a rotating drum head studded with carbide tip, tips, uh, teeth, sort of chewing through this coal seam and carving out a, a room uh, about 20 by 20 and maybe about six feet high, depending on how high the, the coal seam was. And so you've got, it's inherently unstable. And so roof bolters like Gary would go in with a machine and they would drive these metal roofs into, uh, metal bolts in through the roof to uh, pin layers of rock together to hopefully render a cave-in less likely. And it was, it was you know, as I mentioned, one of the most dangerous things you could do in the mines. Yeah, no. So these are both very capable people because, you know, John Klein, if I remember right from the book, uh, you know, really brings himself into law practices, isn't where he started. And it takes a lot of stamina to, to go through all those medical notices and, and engage in this kind of, you know, convoluted fight. L let's move over to the villains because this book does have some villains. I I'm particularly interested in, in two or three of them. Uh, one is Paul Wheeler from, of all places, Johns Hopkins, which was not what I expected to be the location for one of the villains. And then there's uh, Don Blankenship. Um, so maybe can you talk about both of them and what kind of characters we're talking about? It's interesting. Yeah, the, that was what surprised me was to when I was going through all these cases to see um, where coal companies were, you know, they're, they're allowed to contest these. And so they get their own doctors to read the x-rays and they almost always said that the miner didn't have black lung but what was surprising was that it was coming from john Hopkins, and most of them uh, in fact from this one doctor who led this unit of radiologists paul wheeler as you mentioned and he was exceptionally well credentialed and had sort of the institutional weight of hopkins behind him and was able to really have an outsized impact on a large number of cases. I mean, we're talking thousands of cases over 40 years. Um, and it was interesting to, you know, I tried to explore in the book some of his potential motivations because he wouldn't really speak at, at length with me, but he does have sort of, a, he does have an extensive record um, uh, that I pieced together <laughs> sort of laboriously over time. Um, and it's interesting, you know, he, he kind of has a, a mix of, you know, they, they were receiving a, a lot more money for their readings than yep. other uh, doctors would, but um, it's not clear how much of that went directly to him. And then he also seemed to have just sort of an ideological aversion to um, 
basically he he suspected that miners that uh, disease shouldn't be showing up still uh, you know in the, over the last 20 years and that miners who were purporting to have disease were trying to put one over and get a handout essentially is is, is what is a lot of his statements amounted to um, so I mean he was certainly an interesting uh, uh, character who's pervasive throughout the book. And then Don Blankenship is, um, I think a lot of people will um, know him as the um, sort of cantankerous CEO of Massey Energy, which is no longer in existence, but um, it's sort of their record of um, environmental and safety violations culminated in the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster and um Gary Fox, the principal character um, in my book, worked for him at a Massey mine. And um, interestingly, a lot of the practices that um, increased the risk for things like explosions and cave-ins and other sorts of accidents also uh, caused a lot more dust to be unleashed. And so it was really, I talked with a number of Gary's co-workers and the dusty conditions really uh, appear to have led to a lot of cases of severe black lung, such as what Gary experienced. Now, is is Blankenship, you know, unusually, I guess, rapacious? I mean, you mentioned that he's smart, relentless, and meticulous is how you described him in the book. Is he a cut different than other coal barons? Um, is, is there something particular that's driving him? Uh, just, I'm curious from a character study point of view. Yeah, it's interesting because he, depending on who you you ask, he's either an outlier or sort of just a, sort of an exaggerated personality who sorts of sort of takes on the it's it's sort of like the worst impulses of the coal industry writ large in a lot of people's views. In that okay. he really. He, at a time when a lot of people were not investing in um, southern West Virginia, central Appalachia, he doubled down. And he really does seem to have this view. He's very much um, – he has a website now, and he's since you know run for political office. He calls himself an American competitionist. He very much believes in the free market. Um, he was fiercely anti-union. Um, fiercely anti-environmental regulations, um, you know, and he really just felt that, um, you know, he, he seemed to promote this idea of, of basically America as a meritocracy and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And, um, you know, that, that uh, the strongest would survive. And that, that was why his company was, was doing so well. Um, and it, it did uh, it was very successful until things all collapsed after the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster. Sure. Um, so you you mentioned in the book that there is a, a tradition of fatalism in Appalachia. Uh, this is, as you said, another place a, a place steeped in beauty and blood. For for John Klein coming in from the outside, is that what maybe helped him escape the fatalism and and fight as he did? On, on behalf of Gary Fox and others, um, I mean, what what do you see? Where's this region going? What I mean, you know, you mentioned the Biden administration coming in, but do we have some causes for hope in all of this? Uh, and will the people fight, or is the the fear of big coal, King Coal, just too strong? 
Well, that's the fascinating thing about this region is that there is a sense of fatalism, but there is also this sense of indefatigable optimism. And um, it's an interesting mix. And you've always throughout the history, I mean, really going back from the 60s through the present, um, you have people who, you know, not only uh, do you have people in the region who are, are standing up and fighting, um, but you also have these people who come from places like New York and, and California or, you know, uh, Pennsylvania and, and elsewhere. And they're coming in and they really have, um, there's, they become strong advocates. They sort of, much in the same way that I became captivated by the region, they became captivated by it, by the people, by the injustices that, that are, have been so um, predominant throughout the history of, of this region and that still persists today. And I think it's really been a, a combination of, of determined outsiders who are largely idealistic sort of sort of left-leaning folks and um, and then you know some very determined um, Appalachian residents who have sort of you know been this core coalition that um, for you know the past 50 years has really been fighting um, to make the 1969 law, the promises of disease, disease eradication and fair compensation realities. And they've really together achieved some remarkable reforms in, in recent years. And, you know, so the book is not all doom and gloom, though much of it, much of it is about injustice. Um, there is uh, quite a bit of hope at the end, which was actually very surprising and encouraging to me as a reporter because it doesn't happen all that often. But in this case, when a lot of the injustices came to light, um, you know, the this coalition pushed for reform and the government responded and enacted some meaningful changes that have really helped people. No, no. And the book does indeed end on a high note. I, you know, a, a, a muted or a careful high note, but uh, that there is a sense of progress. And it's just remarkable to me how these people have stayed in this fight when it's a pretty uneven fight by and large. Is there any larger lessons that people can take from uh, this story about, you know, other ways in which we can fight additional injustices, whether in Appalachia or beyond, things that proved effective in that fight that are a, a good template for the future? I think the biggest lesson here is that there's a, a large element of luck to it, but there's also a large element of just persistence and determination. So, as I mentioned, you know, this has been really a, a lot of the people in the book have been fighting for 30 years or more for some of these causes, and they just at many points were sort of banging their heads against the wall, they felt like, and they kept making the same point and not getting a, a, this kind of reception that they wanted. And then they had a setback where, you know, they almost got it across the finish line, but then it largely died at the last minute in, at the end of the Clinton administration. And then it was basically off the table for another um, eight to 10 years, uh, the kinds of reforms that they were looking for. But I think the lesson really is that when you have a combination of determined, even if it's just a small group of determined but persistent advocates who have um, who are focused and who have a strong message, at some point, 
there will be a window of opportunity that arises. And if those people seize on that opportunity, they really can accomplish a lot. Now, that's rare, but it's also a good lesson for me and one that made me um, sort of restored my faith a little bit in um, in both people and in our system of government to some degree. Well, that is good. I mean, to me, one thing is, you know, black lung just as a term is so evocative. It just, it gives you that kind of rallying cry. I mean, the stakes are so high. How can you back off when it's people's lives that are literally, you know, on the line here? So, Chris, I want to thank you so much for having been a guest. Uh, This has been Chris Hamby. His book is called Soul Full of Coal Dust, A Fight for Breath and Justice in Appalachia. This is episode 37 of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, You can find more information about the episode by going to my blog posting at https forward slash emotionswizard.com. If you've joined today's show, you can listen to it again. You can give a review on iTunes, a rating, all of that. Uh, If you want to know about other episodes, you can go to my company's website at the three W's, sensorylogic.com. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. We've been talking about injustice today. So I'm going to cite Reinhold Niebuhr, who said, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination for injustice makes democracy necessary. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.